going to uh, commence tonight what will be a, a series, and we'll carry it through in prayer meetings uh, from now on for a little time, and it's on the passage that we've just read here together in the verses that travel after what we have read as well. And we're looking at from the corner to the closet. Now, it has been said about the aged Turk that he would have been very fond of a long flowing and white beard and a well-shaved cheek and head and a clean turban at all times. And with that kind of appearance, he'd be often found sitting on maybe a piece of Persian carpet, and he's out there on the corner of the street, or he's in front of one of the famous Turkish bazaars, and he's combing away at his beard, and he's smoking his pipe, and he's reading the Koran, and he's reciting his prayers. Now, that's an old practice, but it kept rolling on down through the centuries of time, and in fact, it is still in many quarters practiced even today. And if you're looking for a classic illustration of what our Lord Jesus in Matthew 6 and 5 described as a hypocrite, then look no further for a hypocrite. Our Lord, in this passage, in Matthew 6 and 5, He tells us, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Now, by no means is our Lord here condemning the practice of prayer, rather the one where people are doing it just for public performance and for public praise. But prayer, we know, when He teaches us often, is absolutely necessary. And it is so necessary that God's decree, which itself is immutable, that God's promise and those promises in themselves are infallible, and God's Holy Spirit itself, which is the invincible Spirit of God, these will not be made good, and they will not be given to us unless we pray. John Wesley made a very famous statement, and one that deserves to be remembered by us. God does nothing but in answer to prayer, and we have no argument with that. And so prayer is so necessary that our Lord Jesus here, when He comes to speak at length on the subject of prayer in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, He does not begin by saying, if you pray but rather it is when thou prayest. So the practice of prayer, immediately from that word we see, it is non-negotiable, it is unavoidable, it is inevitable, it is vital, and we cannot possibly do without it. If I and if you were going to have any degree of success in serving Christ, then we must serve Him off the platform of prayer. But of course, we need, and our Lord has put this warning note in and flashed the red light immediately, we need to avoid the whole practice of hypocrisy. In this chapter, and we've read part of it tonight, we're looking in time from Matthew 6 verse 5 right through to the verse 15, our Lord is laying down guidelines for us in the subject of prayer. In other words, He's telling us how to pray. And when He is telling us that, then it's very important that we listen to Him. And the first lesson already we've touched upon, and it's simply this, get off the corners and into the closets. 
Verse 5 and 6, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as a hypocrite's arm, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. We're going no further tonight than the opening words of Matthew 6 and verse 6. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. Sounds so simple, so straightforward. What could be difficult about this? But it's one of the more difficult, in fact, the most difficult disciplines of all that we encounter in the Christian experience. And why is that? Well, first of all, in the closet, our insufficiency and our weakness are exposed. In the closet, when we close that door, our insufficiency and our weakness are exposed. Entering into the closet, it is a humbling experience. Let me explain. And given the fact that I'm going to draw an explanation from computing, and given what we've done already tonight here, then that's going to be a difficult explanation to give. But from time to time, I will run a program or two, and obviously they weren't working because we had all kinds of gremlins for a long time in the mix here. Have you noticed? We haven't bombed at any stage in the last number of days when we've done this because I have got a new program in there that's checking performance loss, checking for viruses, has thrown out the little virus that was causing all the chaos, and I'm hoping it'll keep chasing all the other subsequent guys out of town. And we won't be bombing out here. But you can get ones that do the speedometer check. You can do the ones that have the disinfectant check and all of that. And that will chase and curb these potentially crippling viruses. Now, going into your closet and going into mine is something like running those programs through our spiritual system. Prayer in the secret place has been described as the place to check up on spiritual health. And that is the barometer of where we are with God, how we perform in the closet. Also described as, and some people mightn't appreciate this one, the scales where we find out whether we're losing or gaining weight in the spiritual life. Another explanation or description, a murder reflecting our true spiritual condition. And I don't think there's any ground for an argument there at all. But then we come to one of the most caustic, I guess, preachers in the last century. And that's Leonard Ravenhill. And he never buttered anything up or sugar-coated anything, but he gave it exactly as he saw it. And we can appreciate that, I'm sure. But he said, the stark naked bankruptcy of human attributes is never more revealed than in the prayer chamber. And he went on to say, outside the prayer closet, 
influence, affluence, prestige and possessions, whole sway and they grant privilege. Inside the secret place, all human values are negated. And I would imagine that's why going into the closet is so unpopular with so many of those who bear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we don't want to be made aware of our, feeling, of our feelings. We don't want to print out of all of those spiritual defects in our life, those shortcomings, those spiritual deformities. We don't want to gaze into a mirror for any length of time that's going to reveal us in a true image that shows us warts and all. We are embarrassed by our mistakes, much more by our sins. We'll be coming to that time of year when there be maybe a forecast of black ice on the road or on the ground. And I'm sure you've done it in the past. I know I have. And you're walking along and you're looking pretty sprightly and all of a sudden one leg goes up in the air and down you go virtually on the tailbone. And there's a bang and you feel it. Now, unless we're very badly injured and can't move a limb afterwards, we don't lie on the ground prone there for too long, doing quicker than a boxer trying to beat the count. We're leaping onto our feet again and scarcely taking the time to dust ourselves down, rearrange our clothing, anything like that. We're running away from the scene of the incident as quickly as we can, dreadfully embarrassed and shooting sideways glances. Did anybody anywhere see me looking out a window coming behind me? coming towards me. We don't want to be seen. It's so embarrassing. And when we get into the closet and God begins to deal with our hearts and show us what we are, we are feeling like getting up and running out. Open the door. Let me away from here. I'm getting claustrophobic in here. I think of Daniel. Tremendous illustration of humility in the closet is revealed in the life of Daniel. And, well, we know Daniel the prophet and prayer are pretty much synonymous, go together. In fact, they seem totally inseparable. You couldn't prize them apart. And a lot has been said about Daniel's actions when, in Daniel chapter 6 and 10, he defied that inflexible law of the Medes and the Persians. And we read there now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did a four time. And we're inspired by that. That's remarkable courage. And it's followed by a very remarkable deliverance from the paws and claws and jaws of those lions, no doubt because he bombarded heaven's gate with another salvo of prayer. Little wonder we sing the chorus, maybe at Sunday school and children's meeting, Daniel was a man of prayer. Daily he prayed three times, even when they had him cast in the den of lions. But that chorus doesn't go on to mention, and most times in our preaching we don't go any further than that. We don't go into Daniel 9, where he's praying again, or even get to Daniel 10, where he's praying once more. But in Daniel 10, the verse 2 to 9, what do we find. Daniel in prayer, he says, verse 8, I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. 
I was in a deep sleep in my face, and my face toward the ground when I heard the voice of his words. You see, when he was in the prayer chamber, when he's locked here in the closet doing business with God, every physical and material advantage had been canceled out. And so we find that muscle men and millionaires philosophers and fighters, statesmen and sages, everything they have in terms of man-made glory has to be left outside the door of that prayer chamber. And we feel we have no power before a mighty, holy God. A young man went to college. When he'd been there over a year, his parents said to him, what do you know? Do you know more now than what you did when you went there? Oh, yes, he said, I certainly do. And then he came back from the second year, and his parents asked him the same question. Do you know more than when you went? And he said, no. I feel I actually know a great deal less. Because the more I learn, the more I see there is to learn. And I'm dwarfed by all of that. And the father said, well, you're getting there. And then the third year ends, and the same question is posed, what do you know now? And he said, well, I don't think I know anything. That's right, his father said, you've now learned how to really profit, because that's the point at which you really begin, from the point where you realize, I really know nothing. The man who was convinced that he knows nothing of himself as he should know, enters into the closet, gives up the steering of his ship, and he lets God take control of the rudder of his life. He puts aside his own wisdom, and he cries, Lord, my little wisdom, I lay at your feet. My little judgment, I bring to thee. Hear my cry, and help me, because I'm in need. And in this technological age when Man can weigh the earth, and he can take the temperature of the sun, and there's not much scientifically that he feels he can't do. Man really hates going into a place where that scientific knowledge is defaulted, but that's what he finds when he comes to the throne of grace. His brain power checkmated, his native abilities thwarted, his own earthly wisdom counts for nothing, and that's why man tends to shun the place of prayer might even view it in the way that wicked old Ahab considered the true prophet of the Lord, Micaiah. The verdict is given in 1 Kings 22 in the verse 8. He said, there is yet one man, Micaiah the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. I don't want to go down that route. It's the last thing that I want to do. We need to come low before the Lord. As 1 Peter 5 and 6 instructs us, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. And that certainly applies as you and I go into the closet. Humility before exaltation. Constantine the Great was one day looking at statues, uh, statues of notable persons. And all of them are represented standing and he's scratching his chin, and he's considering deeply, and he comes off with this line, I shall have mine taken kneeling, for that is how I have risen to eminence. 
And that's the only way we, and as a congregation, as a church, we are going to rise when we're often found kneeling in prayer before the Lord. The closet, not an easy place because our insufficiency of weakness are exposed, our time and our patience are also expected. That makes it difficult. We live, as we know, in a day of do it yourself and do it quickly. And we're looking for instant results no matter where we turn. Nobody likes to be held back. Nobody wants to be delayed. Everything has to be made fit into the tightest of schedules. There's hardly room to breathe in the world today, to sit down and press pause and relax and take stock and recharge the battery. We're all sucked into this secular rat race. One preacher that you'll recognize very well, Dr. Tozer, he often quipped when he preached about these instant Christians, people who wanted to be all they should be without investing time and without showing patience, without giving endurance and putting effort into the task. And while we want to be instant Christians, it's not the way it happens. We don't become complete, well-rounded, experienced, without time and without patience. And if you want to take any biography of a warrior of Jesus Christ who has seen blessing on a major scale, what do you find? You find inevitably, always, he or she was a man or a woman of prayer. We know all about praying Hyde, George Mueller, David Brainard. What about Edward Pison? They called him the praying Pison of Portland. Dr. Edward Pison, a great preacher up there, and he apparently wore the hardwood boards in his room into grooves where those knees of his were pressing so often and so long in ardent and persevering prayer. William Bramwell, famous English Methodist preacher, would often spend as much as four hours agonizing in one single session of prayer before God. And no wonder he went out of the closet. And he was known as, on the circuit out there, preaching the Word, he was known as a flame of fire. It said of James Gilmore, the pioneer missionary to Mongolia, that he never used a blotter when he was writing, and back in the days when you were waiting for the old ink to dry. Instead, all times like that, interruptions, time where patience was required, he just used as an opportunity to call upon God and sank to his knees in prayer while that ink was drying on the page that he had written. Now, there are occasions when prayer is directed like an arrow, and it's answered in a flash. Prayer telegram, emergency calls, do get emergency answers, but that's the exception rather than the rule as a rule. Prayer needs an incubation period, a time where it's put up to God's face again and again repeated, a time when He tests our resolve to see if we really desire the answers that we are saying that we want, a time when He is glorified through that. And we are benefited 
because we are being drawn aside from all of the paralyzing peace of the world, and we're unburdening our hearts before the throne, and that is not a wasted, futile exercise. Today's brand of Christianity, so caught up in the flurry of business, and so swamped by our selfish interests that we want large bonuses for small investments in prayer. We want to sow radish seeds, and we're expecting to go out in the morning and have a redwood tree growing in the garden as a result. God's command is fixed. Psalm 27 and 14, you've got to stay and pray. Get into the closet. Spend time there. Wait on the Lord, and He shall strengthen thine heart. In Ephesians 6 and verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching their own tomb with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And so it's important that I just don't open the closet door, run in, use it as my vehicle for merely saying prayers, but I need to stay and pray and listen to what the Lord wants to say to me there. Psalm 46 and 10, be still and know that I am God. Oh, that we could get into the sandals of Habakkuk the prophet. And you'll notice in his language in Habakkuk 2 and 1, how he was determined and he knew that I'm not spending just a short amount of time looking for a quick-fire solution here. I'm here for the long haul. He says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. He understood time and patience in the closet. That's what's needed. And that's what makes it difficult. In the closet, our insufficiency and weakness are exposed, our time and patience are expected, and finally, our strength and concentration are expended. Our strength and our concentration are expended. Look at the word that we have in verse 5 and again in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 6. And when thou prayest, and that term prayest has been translated as asking earnestly. And you know what will happen? Here's a warning. When you get into that closet, close the door, and start asking earnestly, you know what's going to happen? You're going to find the devil in there with you. That's what you're going to find, because a powerful prayer life becomes the target of satanic antagonism. The devil knows the effect of the kind of praying that that is going to have in his kingdom. He realizes it is going to rock and ruin his intentions against the church of Christ. And so he will mobilize everything that he has at his disposal or what he can commandeer to prevent us wrestling in prayer. Ever wonder why you experience so much difficulty? encounter so many obstacles, when you vow before God, I'm going to set aside a distinct time. The closet, I'll be in it at that time. 
I'm going to wrestle with God. Ever wonder why there are so many issues that suddenly appear right then, around that time? The words of William Cooper are so true in his hymn, What Various Hindrances We Meet in Coming to the Mercy Seat. And yet he continued, Yet he who knows the worth of prayer wishes to be often there. And why is it? Well, going through in Cooper's hymn, He says, restraining prayer, we cease to fight. Prayer makes the Christian's armor bright, and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. And he references Moses here when Moses stood with arms spread wide. Success was found on Israel's side, but when through weariness they failed, that moment Amalek prevailed. We need to wrestle. And why is that? Because the devil has a cunning old confederate lodged in our own hearts. The old Adam, the flesh, and you and I know how strongly the flesh kicks against the practice of prayer. Oh, pray a few words, but if you're going to be prolonged, the flesh does not like it. And strenuous supplication totally the opposite of what the flesh wants. Our carnal nature is full of enmity to this kind of a path, does not want us to go down this road at all. What a quote. The words of a Norwegian pastor, Ole Halsby. He said, everyone who has experienced in prayer knows that to listen quietly and tumbly For what the spirit of prayer says requires continued and powerful wrestling. And he notes a struggle is involved in listening to what the spirit has to say while we pray. What does it mean to wrestle in prayer? Many people imagine you're struggling against God. You're forcing him to do something that initially he wasn't going to do. That is not what struggling and wrestling in prayer is about at all. As if he's withholding the gifts as long as possible, teasing us, pressurizing us to wring them from him. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's a pagan, not a biblical concept of prayer. God is bountifully willing to shed his blessing upon the heads of his people. Luke 11, verse 9 and verse 13 emphasizes this, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him. He's telling us to ask, well, why then the striving? Our striving is a struggle, not with God, but against ourselves and against the devil. Satanic hostility, our selfishness, our slothfulness, our lethargy, our ignorance, our desire to get the door of the closet open and get me out of here and let me get on to do something else. All of that that militates against striving and persevering prayer and wrestling, that's what we are battling against. And when we're honest, 
we realize to pray and not to faint is such a challenge. They close with the words of an anonymous preacher. Used an illustration, we'll skip over the illustration, and we'll take his prayer at the end of that. Oh, for a higher ambition to be made meet for the Master's use, a more intense longing for that secret power with God in private that shall make us more than conquerors over hell in public. Oh, for a more intense longing for that secret power with God in private that shall make us more than conquerors over hell in public. Enter into thy closet and pray. Amen.